Hey crew, before we get started today, I just wanted to remind you that we have a Discord channel at Just Enough Trope on Discord. If you want to join us, you can follow the link in our show notes to join conversations about all your favorite pop culture topics, Star Trek, obviously, right up there, first of all, and also sci-fi, fantasy, TV shows, movies, comic books, video games, all those things that your parents said that you were too good for, they were wrong! You're not too good for them! In a good way, uh, join us on Discord and discuss all of your favorite nerdy topics. We'll be waiting for you. I'd also like to point you to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod if you want to support the show. If you like what you hear, we would appreciate it. For just a small contribution per month, you can gain access to even more content from enterprising individuals. More information available at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. My guest on the show today is sci-fi and fantasy author Catherine Valenti. I was so glad to get a chance to talk with her about Star Trek, also the intersection between sci-fi and fantasy that happens in Star Trek, and many, many, many other aspects of Trek, which you'll hear on the episode. Uh, please check out uh, the links that we have in the show notes to her work, uh, to her Patreon as well. Follow those. Follow her on social media. We'll be back next week for a special spooky Halloween Star Trek presentation. So join us then. Along those lines, I'd like to point you to our sister show, Backtracking on this same network, where we're talking about the Salem Witch Trials, the film about the Salem Witch Trials, based on a play about the Salem Witch Trials called The Crucible, and the intersection of the Salem Witch Trials with the Star Trek universe in the Star Trek animated series episode, The Magics of Megas 2. If you ever wanted to see Kirk and Spock summon the devil at a slumber party, uh, you win the fanfic challenge. But also, you're in luck because that's exactly what happens in the Magics of Megas 2. So check that out. That's at Backtracking on Twitter at B-A-C-K-T-R-E-K-K-I-N-G. That's it. Hope you have a very special and spooky Halloween season. And with that, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide I wanna know what you're feeling Tell me what's on your mind Haley Frequence is open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and you know how parents are, always showing up to try and serve you tea while you're trapped in a realm of thought a billion miles from home. Just text, Mom. Jeez. I'm joined on this episode by New York Times bestselling author Catherine M. Valenti. Catherine is the Hugo and Locus award-winning author of over two dozen novels, short stories, and novellas, as well as many other works of poetry, fiction, and nonfiction, including The Orphan's Tales and the Fairyland series. Her most recent novel, Space Opera, was a 2019 Hugo Award nominee for Best Novel. The sequel, Space Oddity, is due out in 2021. Catherine, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So great to have you here. Permission to come aboard granted. <laughs> 
Today we'll be talking about Where No One Has Gone Before, the sixth episode of the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Star Trek is not space opera, except when the doctor is singing opera. But the mythical <laughs> elements that underpin properties like Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica, and Dune have no place in Gene Roddenberry's world of hard sci-fi and even harder atheism, except that one series that has a celestial temple filled with time-bending prophets. No, the Star Trek... <laughs> is an exploration of a universe that follows rational laws, give or take the occasional Apollo or Rumpelstiltskin. As the younger sibling of myth and fantasy, sci-fi is beholden to the tropes and archetypes of its forebears, substituting aliens for monsters and super science for magic, and why not, really? What is the Enterprise but a Homeric ship that our heroes steer into the odyssey of the unknown, sailing a sea of imagination and potential? And the odd uh, Jack the Ripper, now and again. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Catherine, I always ask new guests on the show about their backstory and history with Trek. How did you become a Star Trek fan? So my dad was uh, into the original series. Uh, in fact, I do remember at one point um, uh, it, when my little brother was born, uh, a discussion about um, what his name was going to be. And his middle name is James uh, <laughs> to this day. But <laughs> there were... Uh, proposals that were more direct and uh yeah <laughs> and then um i remember uh watching the first couple of next gen episodes when they came out and i was little uh i i, I was not a, a teenager or anything like that when uh next gen started airing but um i remember that really clearly and uh then my boyfriend in high school was a or junior high and a little bit of high school was like a all in Trekkie <laughs> conventions, the whole thing. And like, I love Star Trek. I didn't know there were conventions. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that sort of opened that whole world up to me. And then, um, you know, uh, I think that probably a lot of people might remember in the nineties that next gen was rerunning pretty much all the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, like you could turn into uh, tune into a number of channels and find a next gen episode. But, uh, Every night at 11 p.m., I think it was TNT was running them. And for like most of my college career, that was just my comfort watching. 11 o'clock, <laughs> studying too much, next gen's on. Uh, and so I ended up watching all those episodes so many more times than I had even watched them in the original run. Um, and I ended up doing the same thing with DS9. I, I don't even remember who was rerunning that, but that was the, the same thing where I just watched them over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, and so there's this sort of thread of, uh, particularly Next Gen and DS9, but, um, you know, I love the original series and I have some warm spots for Voyager. I'm not an Enterprise girl. Uh, <laughs> and I, 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 I'm actually pretty into Discovery, honestly. Um, yeah. But like Next Gen and DS9, it's this sort of thread going through the better part of my sort of sentient life. You know, I was uh, nine years old when the when Next Gen uh, started airing. Um, so it's been around for uh, most of the time that I have been around uh, those shows. And um, these days, uh, <laughs> my husband always knows uh, if I'm I'm feeling down because he'll hear the next-gen music start playing <laughs> <laughs> because it just always makes me feel good it's like a warm bath like yeah, i yeah. yes of course i know everything from every episode but it's just like visiting old friends it's a place to go tng came in too at this time that was you know because it was syndicated so it was sort of 
breaking from the three network structure and it sort of uh, sort of ran the table as far as that was concerned because you could see it in first run in syndication and also of course it was repeating in syndication. Now there are a million channels you know, and there's so many things to see that things get lost in the haze. But yeah, if you were looking for something that wasn't on the big three and that was uh, sci-fi, it was right there. And as you said, just playing all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the 90s were a pretty good time for televised science fiction, honestly. Yeah. Uh, with um you know Babylon 5 and everything getting started later on and uh, all of that well speaking of science fiction and uh also you know T Buffy was on at that time I can't even remember mm, yeah, yeah, when uh, uh with the X-Files of course which has both uh, uh yeah I mean X-Files started in the in the sort of early mid 90s yeah. so <laughs> who can yeah. remember now <laughs> well I mean the funny thing is so like I actually I both sort of remember but also know a lot of this because I'm a big Twin Peaks fan oh, yeah. and Twin Peaks actually presaged a lot of the the um sort of premiere television the marquee television that we have nowadays but it was a huge influence on X-Files so I always remember the X-Files started uh right out like a year year and a half after Twin Peaks ended right and David Duchovny on both of them of course mm -hmm. as an FBI agent yeah yep uh, you write primarily in the genre of fantasy. You coined the term myth punk to describe mm -hmm. your work and works like it. What distinguishes myth punk from fantasy? Um, well, actually, the funny thing is, it's been a while since I've written fantasy. I've been uh, hanging out in sci-fi for quite That's some time true. now. But, that is true. but if you look at my my bibliography, there's definitely way more fantasy than science fiction. <laughs> a lot of fairies. Um, <laughs> but so, I mean, the funny thing about myth punk is that uh, that was a joke. That was a live journal entry from way back in the day. <laughs> it's literally just a paragraph long. And the, the, the paragraph says this, that there was a bunch of us at the time who were sort of up and coming writers who were doing a lot of work with um, folklore, fantasy, uh, fairy tales, and uh, mythology. And that we were sort of coming at it in this um, very postmodern kind of angry girl way. <laughs> sure. uh, and that if we lived nearby and like got together at coffee shops, people would call it a movement. And then I made a joke because of course, everything at the time was being coined punk, steampunk, cyberpunk, whatever, yeah, yeah. Uh, that it, it would be myth punk. Um, ha ha ha. And literally never thought about it again, except that people really picked it up and ran with it and found it a term that um, really described what they were trying to do. Yeah. And then now there's been myth punk conventions and uh, people are are very attached to the term. Um, and I'm, I'm thrilled for that. Uh, I ended up writing this whole essay about uh, punk music and the punk genres in uh, speculative fiction. And I, I think that part of what I was trying to say there is that being punk about mythology was what we were doing. Yeah. Um, you know, that sort of DIY aesthetic and the sort of anger towards society and taking things apart and making them sort of part of your body and soul in that very punkish way. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I never intended, God, there's so many things in my career that I never intended. <laughs> just accidents. And, uh, <laughs> they just turned out to be, but that happens to be one of them. It's that focus uh, on the, the punk part, you know, that we see in you know, cyberpunk, dieselpunk, uh, whatever, where characters are living, you know, on the outside or against the status quo or the institution. And it seems like a unique and postmodern direction for fantasy, which... I think for the longest time was, you know, about upholding societal norms. You know, the evil so-and-so gets published, uh, published. Mm. <laughs> Maybe they get published. <laughs> the evil so-and-so gets punished. The brave and noble are rewarded. And, you know, you take that touchstone away in like a punk or a, or a myth punk tale. 
Yeah, and you know, things do move in cycles. And and uh, in the seventies and eighties, there were people who were doing that kind of thing as well with the Borderlands series and yeah. the Bull and Terry Windling and um, all of those incredible uh, writers. So it's not like it had never happened before, but I think it, it was happening in that sort of um, like late two thousands, early two thousand tens period yeah. in a slightly different way and i think there were a lot of really um techniques from literary fiction and realist fiction that were being brought in mm-hmm. um if you look at something like hal duncan's vellum um which is you know practically a, a fantasy ulysses um i think that there was just a, a new kind of breath blown into it yeah by that measure i think trek is probably closely or more closely related to fantasy um than sci-fi sometimes you know except for the philosophical navel gazing and a little bit of violence uh the characters mm. of trek they're always noble they're always upstanding they're always rewarded at the conclusion of their quest or mission uh with you know the panacea that their situation requires yeah you know i actually wrote um an essay a while ago on charlie strass's blog called shit cisco says um, <laughs> and it was it was about the culture on these ships and uh on the ds9 station that you know one thing that none of them ever foresaw was social media um like now if you think about what twitter would look like on ds9 you know there would be ds9 twitter it would be its own little microverse yeah there'd be slack channels oh yeah Uh, and and it would be i I mean i would love to see that brought into discovery (laughs) on some level because it's hysterically funny how all of this would be brought into the culture of of any of those locations and like the hashtag cisco says would be amazing. I love how uh, <laughs> I love how Jake is a journalist and he's like, I've yeah, written my article, yeah. but I can't post it or publish it. Yeah, it's like he would yeah, be live they, tweeting they never, the Cardassian invasion. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But they never foresaw what we really live in this soup of social media now. But I think that uh, I think that one of the reasons that Star Trek has been so popular with us geeks, and I think that uh, this applies particularly to next gen, but it's absolutely not only next gen, is that the crew are dorks. Oh, like yeah. these are these are geeks. They, they are cosplaying like 19th century yeah. naval yeah. Uh, fiction and, you know, doing LARPing uh, like Sherlock Holmes. And playing like the that. violin and the harpsichord exactly. and stuff. Yeah. All of their hobbies are deeply geeky and not, <laughs> none of them are contemporary to their own time. Yeah. They're all geeks about our time. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that that is because of the limitations of writing far future science fiction and uh that you want people to connect to these uh these characters so you give them contemporary to us cultural references but it also you just especially when you rewatch these things for the seventh or eighth time and your brain starts uh making weird connections like they really really is a ship of geeks oh yeah i also think it's an inheritance of just like earlier ideas of more traditional sci-fi because the idea of like being a, a cyberpunk or just being a punk in fiction is being a rebel and of course all these characters come from you know the tradition of like military science fiction mm-hmm. um, from the 40s and 50s where the rocket men are going to go out and colonize um, space and everything and so I think that to have them do something really edgy you know or, or untoward uh, wouldn't necessarily fit and I don't know what the dividing line between like earlier more mythical seeming sci-fi and modern sci-fi is um, you know like your Ray Bradbury's your Roger Zelazny's your Ursula Le Guin's things seem more kind of dreamy and fantastic until we get to Mm. maybe, I don't know, cyberpunk or the atomic age or something. But I think a lot of early Trek sits on the far side of that line. You know, in the original series, you had sci-fi greats like 
Harlan Ellison and Theodore Sturgeon, Norman Spinrad writing for it. And yet every other episode has mystical forces and godlike aliens messing with the crew and witches and black cats and, and you know, Jack the Ripper. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the thing is, I think there, there's also an attempt to sort of make things truly alien. And at no point uh, during the, the original series did they have the budget to make anything look, except maybe the Horta, but like the, look genuinely alien. So uh, I think some of these mystical things come in to represent technology that is, as Arthur C. Clarke said, indistinguishable from yes, magic. Yes, um, and and so I think that that's that's a huge part of it. And I think that the episode we're about to talk about is that's a big part of what it's what the quote unquote magic yeah. is trying to do in that episode. And you know what you're talking about with. Uh, the literary tradition, I do think there's sort of two tracks of science fiction. And one of them, uh, there's always been like hard science fiction. Uh, if, if you want to call it that, I'm not even sure I want to call it hard science fiction, but science, science fiction that is really bound to a contemporary knowledge of science. Mm -hmm. And then there has been a track that is that sort of dreamy, fantastical, um, more experiential kind of science fiction uh, that is exploring consciousness uh, as its science uh, to fictionalize, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, I don't necessarily think there's a point at which it changes. I think that there's just, there's, there's parallel evolution going on there. Interesting. It seems like one, one side of it makes better TV shows. <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of sci-fi shows. Um, there's often, there's some fantasy shows and some that are really good, but it doesn't seem to be um, pushed quite as much as sci-fi on TV. I mean, I feel like all the time, uh, well, I mean, all the time. Uh, in the 21st century, I feel like you end, you end up with these shows that start out saying, like Battlestar Galactica, they start out saying they're going to be really hard science fiction yeah. and uh, gritty and realistic, and they always end up with God and angels by the end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, they can't they, pretend they anymore. <laughs> they try hard, but they always end up in the same <laughs> place. Well, all those things considered, how, how thick do you consider the lines between fantasy and sci-fi to be painted? Um, I think that they can be as thick or as thin as you want them to be. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that sticking with your mission statement, I think that it's uh, one of the flaws of Discovery. And I quite enjoy Discovery, but I think Discovery doesn't stick with its mission statement. Uh, like it presents itself as it's going to be this gritty, realistic uh, version of Star Trek, but it's the least scientific Star Trek we've ever had. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that, you know, if you if you start out with a mission statement, of, of one way you should probably uh try to stay away from the angels or try to stay away from the the grit but you know it, it just it's all about the story in the end it's all about whether yeah. whether you were true to the premise of the story and explored the most interesting part of it um if it's entertaining no one really cares well that's uh, absolutely true <laughs> <laughs> speaking of the blurring of those lines your novel radiance is a fascinating mashup of ideas um taking the Victorians colonized the solar system setting of a Jules Verne or a Space 1889 and fast forwarding it to an alternate universe, 1986, where the silent film era is still going on. And it's also kind of a murder mystery. And it's also about cinema and narrative. And how do you when you're adding <laughs> elements and you're mashing up genres, how do you say enough? Like, do you ever think like this might be too much? 
You know, uh, there is an outline of radiance uh, floating around my hard drive somewhere where it literally says, am I over-egging the pudding here? Uh, maybe not all Never listen things. to that voice. <laughs> and in the end, I was like, but I want all those things. Like, sure. like, this is the whole point of me doing this. Like, why why am I torturing myself over this structure and all of that if I'm not going to include all the stuff that I want to include? Yeah. Um, so I was really interested in um, that old pulp golden age science fiction where all the planets were inhabitable. Yeah. But you know, I'm interested in the future of that. What happens when we've colonized all those inhabitable planets? What is the fully lived in solar system look like? Yeah. Uh, you know, and I was really uh, interested in the Jules Vernian uh, science fiction that you were talking about. Well, okay, but what does that look like a hundred years down the line? Uh, and so a lot of it is just pushing um, the premise of a subgenre a century on and seeing what that turns out like and then there is this this murder mystery at the uh or maybe not murder um it, at the core of it and um, all of this stuff about movies um and the, the way the movies came into it this started out as a short story uh and the shorts the the original plan of the short story was just the the pulp planets and the victoriana stuff but um i had read an interview with mark danieluski who wrote house of leaves which sure. is one of my favorite novels um and he was talking about his father being a cinematographer and how much that had affected him uh, as a writer well my dad went to film school and uh when i was a very young child was trying to make it as an independent filmmaker and uh i realized that i had though that had had a huge effect on me as a child and as an artist, I had never really written about it. Uh, so there's this whole father-daughter relationship that's all based around movies and the lens mm. and camera and all of it. Uh, and it's 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 um, it's all actually terribly personal if you know my father and my relationship. <laughs> but if you don't, it just seems quite literary. Um, but uh, but yeah, so you know, Radiance is definitely the science fi fiction version of everything, including the kitchen sink. Yeah. <laughs> well, I look forward to your uh, future Star Trek novel uh, featuring a father and a daughter and a brother with a totally normal name. <laughs> never say never. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, have a, I, I have a Minecraft tie-in coming out uh, oh, yeah. in November. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, so on that note, switch gears. Uh, you wrote a Mass Effect Andromeda novel last I year. Did. Yeah, I did. that's arguably a space opera setting. It d definitely <laughs> has a relatively hard sci-fi. Were you familiar with the franchise before working on it? I was a massive fan of, I'm a huge fan of Mass Effect. Awesome. Uh, I am a massive fan of Mass Effect. Sure. I, so I pursued that. Um, my agent was like, oh, why do you want to do a tie-in? Like, <laughs> I hate it. Why are you doing this? Why are you making me make this deal? I'm like, because I love it and I want to. <laughs> make the call. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not even good. Like, you know, they don't pay very well. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> so, uh so yeah, um, I really wanted to do it um, because I just like I was evangelizing to everybody I met about Mass Effect, and and I, I just love the game so much. And part of the reason that I love it is it kind of gave me that that watching Star Trek for the first yeah. time feeling, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so uh, it actually my so mine is called Annihilation, and um, it's actually quite hard science fiction, which was part of the. Um, sort of assignment from uh, BioWare. They wanted me to hmm. sort, of, sort of strip down the available technology uh -huh. um, in a kind of the Martian Mass Effect way. Okay. Uh, like the, the Martian was specifically mentioned. I'm like, huh. Okay, all so right. you want Mass Effect without the technology, that's going to be really interesting. Yeah. So like one of the first things I had to do was come up with a way to hamstring all of that high tech. Yeah. Uh, so Annihilation is actually kind of a classic locked room 
mystery. Okay, and there's cool. a plague that's released on the ship, uh, and they don't have the technology to just press a button and scan and find out what's going on. So, right. you know, all of the sort of various skills from people from these aliens weird lives have to come into play to to even do something as basic as an autopsy okay and this is another narrative too uh like our episode today where you've got humans leaving our galaxy and yeah, exploring yeah. a different one yeah and so they are they're completely without help out in the middle of nowhere um yeah so i mean in a lot of ways it, it kind of was my chance to to write a star trek kind of story because god how many episodes are there in next gen where everybody like somebody's alone on the ship or yeah, like yeah, the yeah. power starts getting shut down or you know the the sort of uh lonely person on the ship is a is a next gen staple <laughs> i can't wait till i'm a famous author and i can force my agent to get me a video game tie-in <laughs> <laughs> Uh, your, we have to talk about your recent novel, Space Opera, which revolves around an intergalactic talent contest, which is based on Eurovision. And mm -hmm. I have to confess, embarrassingly, I know that Eurovision's been around since the 50s, but I and most of America, I think, are fairly unfamiliar with it. Yeah, there's no reason to be embarrassed. Americans okay. don't know. That's fine. Um, I was, you know, I was in Ireland for Worldcon, and it was awesome to like go to a reading and not have to explain to everybody what Eurovision okay, is. Okay, sure. <laughs> so Eurovision is, uh, it's kind of like if you combine like the X Factor and Miss Universe and World War One. <laughs> <laughs> that last one there, okay. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it'll, it'll come in. So every year, everybody, uh, all everybody, all the countries in most of the countries in Europe, plus a few these days that are not in Europe, like Australia, uh, send a singer or a band to whatever country won it the previous year, and there's like a battle of the bands, uh, and everybody wears insane costumes. It's sort of trashy euro pop music not always <laughs> though it's quite a nice ballad that won this year uh and it's um just this incredible show like uh honestly if you want to know what uh i mean i've written a number of articles saying this is how to watch eurovision but if you want to just watch one song and know why i had to write a science fiction novel about it watch australia's entry from this year okay. uh which is called zero gravity and it's amazing okay um i so the World War One thing comes in because there's voting from home and there's jury voting. And the rule with both of those is that you can't vote for your own country. Oh. So uh, you get a lot of these alliance voting that ends up kind of being a snapshot of European politics for the year. <laughs> uh, and like there's kind of an Eastern Bloc voting. <laughs> there's like there's uh, whether or not a particular country has a large diaspora of people who have immigrated to other countries in Europe tends yeah. to be a huge factor. Okay. Um, this is why people think Australia may never win because they there are not a bunch of Australians living anywhere right, else. Right. You know. <laughs> uh, so yeah it's a it's a totally fascinating i absolutely love it it is massively popular americans do not realize how popular this thing is 200 million people watch it we every year missing out yeah we are um also we should never be part of it because we wouldn't understand the not voting for our own country i guess uh, <laughs> and who would vote for america everybody would team up against no, us but the, the thing is that no one votes for the uk it's kind of a running joke okay uh, like uh, Neil Point, no points is uh, kind of the running gag with uh, the United Kingdom. So uh, obviously, the band that goes out to try and save Earth in my book, Space Opera, is a British band. Okay, sure. 
Perfect. Uh, a little side Eurovision joke for the true fans. I love, um, I love that the aliens that invite Earth to participate in the contest suggest uh, we could send maybe Yoko Ono or, or Skrillex <laughs> or the guy yeah. from that movie, uh, Henry VIII. You know, it, it, it reminds <laughs> well, me of a, a scene in Doctor Who where in the year five billion, you know, aliens want to play a classic Earth song to commemorate the planet's destruction. And they play Toxic by Britney Spears. Yeah. Like they don't have yeah. any context. So they're making these questionable choices in our society. Well, well, and like, I mean, the thought in my head was what sounds good to an alien ear? It's not <laughs> yeah, going to be right. the, like three chord thing that is popular here on Earth. It's going to be, you know, some weird Japanese lady screaming into a microphone. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of sort of uh, j jokes like that. It is very much a love letter to pop music as well as a love letter to science fiction. Uh, there are as many uh, jokes about obscure musical things as there are about obscure tropes in science fiction. That so, sounds great. Yeah. So can we confirm then a uh, sequel coming out uh, 2021 or soon? Uh, 2021. Yeah. That sounds good. Well, I'd love to keep talking about your work. Uh, you, I'm going to talk about the refrigerator monologues and SF uh, Squeakast, but uh, Star Trek. Space Odyssey does have a, a sort of Star Trek tie-in, though. When it comes out in uh, 2021, you can remember that I said there is a there's a Star Trek thing in it. <laughs> right. Exa yeah, exactly. Uh, so we got to talk about Star Trek. So uh, let's get to it. When we were looking for an episode to cover, I didn't want to pigeonhole you as, you know, quote-unquote fantasy writer. So obviously, we you know, we have to talk about um, something that is related to myth and magic, but not exactly. I thought it would be an interesting exercise to explore the mythopoetic elements that often come up in Star Trek. Mm. I mentioned before, I thought that TOS was often exploring these spaces. And of course, you know, the early days of TNG were steered by many of the same writers and producers that worked on the original series. And many season one and two TNG episodes feel like TOS episodes. And yeah. the episode that we're talking about today, I think is at the top of that list. Yeah, I mean, it's a really early episode. It's only yeah. episode five. So you're talking about uh, a cast that hasn't like fully gelled yet and characters that aren't fully themselves. I think, you know, Worf is sort of barely recognizable. Uh, yeah, and, and, and Captain Picard has got that sort of oh, whipping back and forth thing. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> so mean. He's really mean in this episode. And Riker's kind of mean too. This is definitely <laughs> fully in the everyone is just a dick to Wesley all the time. Yeah, uh, yeah sure, okay. yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And it does very much feel like an original series episode, uh, uh, you know, coming not very far after, you know, the actual uh, ripoff TOS episode where uh, Yara and Data sleep together. Right. Um, yeah. So it's it's definitely uh, it's it's an interesting episode, too, because it comes back in in a big way in Wesley's story uh, in his final episode. Uh, so it is sort of planting something that comes back in later on, which is not all that common back in this very episodic uh, kind of era of television. Yeah, it is nice that Wesley, and we'll talk about his character as we go on here, but as a character, he does get uh, a little arc there that I yeah. um, I kind of would want. To, I'm sure it's been resolved or, or at least expanded on in uh, extended media. But, you know, where does he go? What happens to him? I'm sure that there is extended media about it. I'm positive there is, but I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> I don't know how much that uh, tradition really continues in later Trek, um, even in later TNG. You know, as the show and the franchise goes on, I think it gets more practical and more political and more interested in picking at the idea of the utopia. Except for all, except for all the prophet stuff in DS9, <laughs> yes, which exactly. is very similar to this in a lot of ways. That's true. Yeah. Um, DS9, you know, has this planet that worships time traveling aliens. But even that, I think, takes a backseat in later seasons to the mm. um, political maneuvering and the military storylines and examining those social issues that Trek mm. likes to pick apart. Yeah. 
I think on DS9, they, you know, Cisco becomes alien Jesus at the end, basically. Sure. And it's yeah. like the end. It's like the last uh, episode. And I think if you uh, start the last season with him becoming alien Jesus, and then we're dealing with that, you've got a, you got a stew going. Yeah, I actually, I mean, I rewatched DS9 uh, for the nth time uh, not too long ago. And I was really disappointed with that they wait to pull the trigger on that to the end. Cause you, you kind of knew that's probably where they were going to go with it, but there's no notion of what happens after that and right, where right. he goes, what his experience is. And I know that there's novels about it, but like, I just would really like to have seen that happen and then see it play out. See the, how the characters respond to somebody who can show up anywhere. I mean, he, there's no, no longer any sort of mortal coil to hold him back. Yeah. So uh, he could have turned up at any point. He could turn up in Discovery, for all we know. Yeah, there are all these suggestions that that is, you know, the next frontier, uh, even in this episode, that humans yeah. will one day achieve something like that. Q insinuates yep. that. And so here we have a couple examples of that happening, but it maybe just falls outside of the purview of the series, I guess, because we never really explore that. I mean, and the funny thing about this episode is it, it's a it's a pretty great premise. And then what you find out is that the crew of the Enterprise has kind of shitty imaginations. Yeah, they're not, they're not <laughs> like, <that> great. <laughs> where thought becomes reality and it's just like a couple of kitty cats and Picard's mom. Uh, <laughs> like, it's, it's really, and I love that at the end when they're like, everyone has to think really hard uh, and, you know, believe in fairies so we can get home. Like Everybody not clap. one person is like, hold on, hold on, hold on. I got to imagine some stuff before we go. Right, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> First of all, like there's all fire. these people who have got to be addicted to the holodeck at this point are not. Oh boy, uh, yeah, like, that's a whole other uh, show. Can we just put this off for like an hour? Just... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everybody be good. Nobody think of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Come yeah, on. Exactly. Well, uh, we're talking about where no one has gone before. Like I said, it's the uh, sixth episode of the first season of Star Trek: The Next Generation. It first aired on October 26th of 1987, and it was written by Diane Duane and Michael Reeves. Diane Duane has been mentioned on this show before. She's an accomplished fantasy and science fiction writer, having penned many tie-in novels and original works of fiction, including the Young Wizards series of YA novels, as well as the Rihansu series of Star Trek books. And as a screenwriter, she's written for sh uh, such shows as Batman the Animated Series, Gargoyles, My Little Pony, DuckTales, and more. Michael Reeves is also an accomplished SFF writer and screenwriter, having written for live-action series like Buck Rogers, the 80s reboot of The Twilight Zone, The Father Dowling Mysteries, and more. He's worked on animated series like Gargoyles and My Little Pony as well, The Real Ghostbusters, and Batman, for which he received a 1993 Emmy Award for Outstanding Writing. He's the author of over 40 novels and short stories, and he's the co-author of the Interworld Trilogy with Neil Gaiman and his, uh, his own daughter, author Mallory Reeves. The episode is directed by Rob Bowman. This episode was one of Bowman's first credits as a television director and his first episode of TNG, although he would go on to direct 13 episodes of the series in total. He's had a prolific career in television and film. He was a longtime director and producer on The X-Files, as well as the ABC series Castle, and he directed The X-Files feature film in 1998, as well as the films Electra and Reign of Fire. Wow. The start date for this episode is 41263.1. Your assignment, Catherine, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Where No Man Has Gone Before. Excuse me, Where No One Has Gone Before. <laughs> um, uh, there's a visit from corporate, uh, new efficiency <laughs> expert, uh, turns up with his assistant, uh, screws everything up. Uh, the assistant turns out to be a time-traveling alien, takes them to where thought becomes reality. Uh, everyone has a freak out and then goes home. 
That's a great, I love that great <laughs> mundane reading of it. Because like, the guy from corporate's a jerk. His assistant does all the work. Yada, I mean, yada, yada. totally, I think that that's probably you know, what the actor was thinking of. Because that's that's exactly the air he comes in with. Yeah. Uh, I, I, he, he's of course the character that you're designed to hate from the beginning. Oh yeah, uh, seems oh. <laughs> everybody. But even even he gets a little empathy at the end because the yeah, traveler's like, know, oh, you know, he he got close, and then he asks him to help, and because he's like, yeah. me. <laughs> well, I actually one of the things I do like about it is it uh, is about his character is that it, he says partway through the episode that he did think it was him. He wasn't like enslaving some alien no, and passing yeah. off and like you know running a scam he really thought that he was doing something yeah. i think that's a little more uh complex and human than sort of i think that probably <laughs> the original series would would have you know with mud and everything would, would have had somebody who knew it was a uh, it wasn't him right yeah um, he's just that. totally overestimating his abilities yeah absolutely <laughs> again a visit from corporate yeah but, you know the important thing the really important thing we have to talk about though is uh, this is one of the classic Wesley sweaters. Oh my goodness, yeah. Oh yeah. my God, what is it? It's the peach one that has like ruched fabric between the knitted fabric. And shoulder it's, pads and yeah. And shoulder pads. It is a woman's sweater. <laughs> uh, it's from his mom's like, closet. It's yeah. from Ann Taylor's loft, no <laughs> joke. Uh, and has, I swear, the fabric between the knitted fabric is like, sateen or something like yeah. that it is it is like one of my top two wesley sweaters you can't be a star child human messiah and wear a sweater like that sorry absolutely not <laughs> the story for this episode was loosely based on diane duane's first star trek novel the wounded sky which is set in the original series era writer and future series head writer maurice hurley rewrote the script several times and according to duane the finished product bears little resemblance to their original script Music plays a really big part in this episode. The imaginary string quartet that we see is playing an arrangement of the first movement of Eine Kleine Nacht music by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Uh, the ballerina uh, is seen dancing to a composition entitled Waltz of the Chocolate Donut. It was composed by series composer Ron Jones, who also scored the rest of the episode. And the music is, mm, Chef's Kiss, is very solid in this episode. It's beautiful. Mm. It does a lot of the storytelling work. And the episode was, in fact, nominated for an Emmy Award for sound mixing on a drama series in 1988. This is the first episode in which the pool table is present in engineering. Uh, that's the central table console that would be seen for the rest of the series. It's the first episode it was used, but it was first seen in The Last Outpost, which was shot after this episode but aired before. This is also the last appearance of the corridor in the back of the engineering office area. That's a little glassed-in area where Jody sits and does stuff. Uh, that corridor would disappear until it reappeared later in Star Trek Generations. So maybe the Traveler took it with him. This is, of course, the episode where Wesley Crusher receives his acting ensign commission. Um, the bad sweaters would continue, however, for several episodes until he gets his rainbow-shouldered episode that, of course, everyone knows and loves. It's stated in this episode by Kosinski that by 2364, the time of this episode, Starfleet had charted just 11% of the galaxy. And on the subject of other galaxies, the Enterprise travels to M33, or the Triangulum Galaxy, in this episode, literally where no one has gone before at this point in the series. It's stated that a return trip to the Milky Way would take the Enterprise 300 years. This figure is a reference to the original series episode by any other name in which aliens from the Andromeda galaxy hijack the Enterprise and attempt to travel home on a journey that would take 300 years with the modifications that they make to the Enterprise's engines. So clearly, Starfleet engine technology and efficiency has improved to Kelvin levels by the 24th century. 
Let's talk about some of the guest stars in this episode. Eric Menyuk appears as the Traveler in this episode. Menyuk would go on to appear two more times on TNG as the Traveler in the episodes Remember Me and Journey's End. And Menyuk was on the short list of actors being considered for the role of Lieutenant Commander Data before it was offered to Brent Spiner. He worked with series producer Bob Justman to develop a style of speech and action for the Traveler that would make him seem more alien. His makeup was designed by designer Michael Westmore, and he retired from acting in 1998, and he's now an attorney who specializes in representing children with disabilities. Wow. And I it, think he's really great yeah, in the episode. He, he, Genuinely, like what one of it's a really lovely piece of acting. Yeah. That speech pattern is really nice. I mean, I think that that there's a reason people feel quite warmly toward this character. And yeah. that's because he has this he does have this feeling of sort of beneficent warmth about him. Yeah, he's and a little he's, touchy, but yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah, he's a little yeah, <laughs> little uh, probably little a close HR. talker. <laughs> yeah, uh, call HR. But uh yeah, you know, yeah. and you know, immediately uh, drawn to the young man on the, <laughs> well, in yes. this room and, you know, is, is very huggy. So, uh, but, you know, aliens have different, uh, he sees Wesley for his aura, I guess. Yes, right. Uh, yeah. He knows how to pick him. Yeah, he, um, I was reading an interview with him in Starlog magazine at the time and he talked about how they had worked hard to make him seem alien but not weird you know they didn't want it to yeah. be like like they wanted to be relatable but yet kind you know as you said and i think they um achieved that there's also an anecdote that's uh, it's crazy in that interview he's talking about how after the show was on he was in uh, a liquor store or something like that you know in, in la and a kid saw him and said are, are you the traveler and he's like yeah I, I played the traveler and he's like oh you were really great and he's like oh thanks and then later the kid's like can you come to my house my mom doesn't love me <laughs> Oh, no. And he's like, whoa, whoa. And he had to like sit down and kind of talk to the kid and everything. And he realized that like, you know, people are, he was glad that his character seemed like somebody, you know, approachable and somebody that could help people. Well, I was going to say he's kind of like Cosmic Mr. Rogers. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. So I kind of get why the kid would be like, that seems like a dad. Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) Be my space dad. Oh, boy. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yikes. yeah, but anyway, um, but no, now he's, I think he's really great. Yeah, yeah, he is really great. And I'm glad that he as well kind of gets a sort of long arc, but we get to mm-hmm. see him again. Stanley Kamel uh, plays Kaczynski in the episode. The late actor was a ubiquitous presence on TV from the 70s until his death in 2008. Apart from Star Trek, he's best known as Dr. Charles Kroger, the psychiatrist of Adrian Monk on the titular series. Oh, I never watched Monk. I didn't re- did not realize that. I never really watch Monk. Uh, it's one of those things that's always on at your mom's house. Um, <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's not my genre of of a TV. So, but I wonder if I watch it, if I would have been like, that guy looks vaguely familiar. Yeah, I have a crazy theory that I want to pitch. My crackpot theory here early in the show about the character of Kozinski and his relationship to Menyik or the Traveler. Um, in this episode, we've got a fraud scientist named Kaczynski. Uh, Jersey Kaczynski is also the name of an author who wrote a famous Holocaust autobiographical novel called The Painted Bird about his experiences in World War II. It was revealed years later that the book was kind of a James Frey job. Uh, he he was a Jew in Europe, but he didn't have the experiences of the character in the novel. He was you know, fortunate, fortunate enough to have a safe place to live and stay. So also kind of a fraud. Uh, the scientist in the episode has an assistant called the Traveler. Traveler is also a slang term for Romani peoples like yeah. Gypsy. 
Uh, the Traveler has an eccentric, eccentric appearance. He's got a pronounced nose and brow line. He suffers and does all the work at the behest of Kaczynski. The Traveler dresses in a striped sort of uniform that is, at least in my feverish mind, uh, reminiscent of the striped outfits oh. that uh, concentration camp um, inhabitants wore. So I don't know if Maury Hurley's doing something here, but it seems... Ah, I mean, that adds up to me. Of course, there were a lot of Jewish writers and actors involved in Star Trek in yeah, every yeah. series. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that 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 seems like a lot of coincidences. It's a lot of coincidences. I mean, it's a cool name. Yeah. yeah, and it's... Sure, but, you know, there's a lot of cool names. But the first thing you Google is not that guy that comes up. It's yeah, like this yeah. guy. So I just thought that was really, really weird. That's, that's really interesting. Probably huge coincidence. <laughs> a herd aware appears in the episode as Yvette Picard, and she got her start on Broadway in 1935, appearing alongside her husband, Will Gear in Let Freedom Ring. She made her on-screen debut in 1978, and she'd go on to appear in films such as Cocoon and its sequel, Critters 2, Practical Magic, and Cruel Intentions. Biff Yeager appears in the episode as Lieutenant Commander Argyle. He would also appear in the episode Data Lore. Jaeger has appeared in many roles on the big and small screens since his debut in 1974, appearing most recently in a 2019 episode of the series Baskets. TNG, as you probably know, had something of a revolving door for Chief Engineers mm. in its first season, and <laughs> Jaeger was apparently in consideration for a recurring role as Argyle as the series continued, except, allegedly, according to Will Wheaton, he was let go by the producers of the show after the show was hit with a lot of Chief Argyle fan mail praising his performance for episodes that had yet to air. Ooh. So he got the mm. timing wrong on that one. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently him soliciting uh, people to write in uh, was not cool with the yeah. management. Uh, I have another theory. This one's more fun than the last one. Relax. Uh, <laughs> before we settled on Jordy LaForge as chief engineer in season two, there were, of course, four characters presented as chief engineer. And I think each of them is a joke callback to Scotty from the original series. First, yeah, Argyle. <laughs> yes, the first one we see is Lieutenant Commander Sarah McDougal. That's self-explanatory. Mm -hmm. We've, of course, got Argyle. The third is Lieutenant Logan. Uh, Logan is a Scottish name derived mm -hmm. from Lagan. Uh, it's maybe stretching a little. And the fourth one we see is Lieutenant Commander Leland Lynch. And uh, Lynch is an Irish name, so maybe this is running out of steam. But uh, <laughs> you can't have Chief Engineer Haggis. So what are you going to do? <laughs> Uh, the guy who almost gets burned by the imaginary fire is longtime series stunt coordinator Dennis Madalone. This is his first appearance on screen. And finally, Emmy Lou appears in the episode as Worf's childhood Targ. Emmy Lou was, <laughs> was a Russian wild boar, and the Targ costume was designed by series costumer William Ware Tice. No word on who played the cat in the episode. <laughs> It looks a lot like Spot, that cat. It does. Yeah, they must have had a stable of orange tabbies yeah. that they went to. Yeah. Uh, talking about the episode proper, Wesley is a divisive character in Star Trek fandom, which is the understatement of the year. I mean, he's certainly important to the writers of TNG. You can tell in early seasons, but fans tend to find him annoying. Here's the funny thing. I said I was nine when this show started airing, right? Yeah. So I never knew until Will Wheaton started talking about it way later that Wesley Crusher was controversial. Hated. Yeah. I was a child who was not on Usenet. And the two things I was excited about, other than new Star Trek, was that uh, the guy from Reading Rainbow was going to be on it. And 
Will Wheaton, who I had a huge crush on from the movies, was going to do. Yeah, right, right. Like, uh, I, I had my tiger beat with Will Wheaton <laughs> on the cover, <laughs> you know? That's a collector's uh, item, yeah. Oh, for sure. And, like, I loved Wesley. I, I am, like, the poster child for what the idea of Wesley was, that you're going to bring in young viewers who were going to love sort of the fantasy of the kid being the one that solves the mystery all the time. Right. Uh, as an adult, I'm like, why is the kid, given that the best and brightest are on the Enterprise, <laughs> yeah. why does this little kid always have the answers? But as a kid, I was like, obviously, because I too am a genius yeah, who right. would be great in space. Yeah, uh, This is this totally tracks with everything I want the future to be. <laughs> So I, I never knew that uh, until I until way later that anybody had a problem with Wesley because I was totally in love with him. <laughs> there, I, I kind of go back and forth on like what kids want to see in their stories because I think that a lot of stories aimed at kids uh, feature kid heroes, um, but also there's a lot of like adult heroes that kids identify with. Like, do kids want to be Luke Skywalker or do they want to be um, pod racing Anakin? And I think they can do both. You know, I, I know as yeah. when I was younger and watching uh, Star Trek, um, I liked Wesley. If you told me that people hated Wesley, I, I wouldn't have understood. But I did wonder why he was the guy that saved the ship all the time. Yeah, like I read for younger readers as well, for middle grade mm -hmm. uh, and YA readers. And I think that this episode does one thing that will always get a kid interested, which is that Wesley tries to tell everyone what's going on and they refuse to listen to him, but he's right. So every kid has that experience, whether they're right or wrong in the end, has the experience of trying to point something out and the adults aren't listening. And uh, so that is something that instantly speaks to a child's experience and that sense of injustice yeah. that is so much a part of everyone's childhood, no matter what your, your cultural or socioeconomic class is, that feeling of injustice uh, is is the universal feeling of childhood. That's uh, and so any kid recognizes that situation where they see something that the adults don't see and no one will listen to them. And what the kid wants, the fantasy fulfillment, is that they're right. Now, the kid isn't always right. Sometimes they just you know want to point out that there was a pretty butterfly and everyone else is trying to do something <laughs> right. important. But in this case, the pretty butterfly was a time traveling alien and everybody should listen to Wesley. <laughs> yeah. So there is, there is this sort of child uh, or adolescent really uh, wish fulfillment in what happens here in that not only is Wesley right, but he's special. That's yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, and though, though he should never be told he's special, they make a big point of that. So that he doesn't turn into a dick. Uh, he, he is somebody that should be listened to. And I think that that is something that's very, speaks very powerfully to people who are maybe a little bit younger than Wesley. So they sort of look at him as someone they might grow up into, mm. which is definitely the age I was at when this episode aired. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love, yeah. He, he takes it in stride and, you know, finding out that you're, you know, the Mozart of space and time and the chosen one or whatever. He it never really yeah. makes him uh, have a big head. I like the fact that the traveler's like, don't tell anybody about this, though. And then at the end of the episode, Picard's <laughs> like, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> so he broke that rule there. A lot of fantasy stories, and to be fair, space opera and sci-fi stories have a, a chosen one narrative. Um, you know, you want your protagonist to be special and the person who has the guile or aptitude to succeed in the narrative. Um, but you don't want them to come off as you know being infallible or, or a Mary Sue type character how do you balance that uh, in your work well I mean I think you can you can look at Wesley for the answer to this although I don't necessarily I don't necessarily think the show always knows it Wesley screws up a lot 
That's true. Like a lot. Those, like that episode about the nanites that happens oh, yeah, quite yeah, later yeah. on. So yeah, he's a genius who invented nanites. He nearly destroys everything with it. And it, it, it's not, you know, it, it's not a great move on his part. He The way that you make not a Mary Sue is you make them screw up. Yeah. Everything can't go their way. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's fine for to have that sort of wish fulfillment of, of, you know, the injustice being answered and being right. But nobody likes a character who's right all the time. Uh, and it's not an interesting character to watch either. So you have to see them. It, there's no arc if they're always right. So you have to see them develop. Uh, from you know one thing to another whether that's your classic training montage or not uh, <laughs> and you have to see them be wrong you have to see the plan not work you have to see them fail uh, and the thing is that we all have the experience of failing so I think that you end up Mary Sue characters get created when writers are are afraid to have their protagonist fail because they think it makes them unlikable but in fact we love people who fail as long as you know they get back up again because we've all failed it makes right. them more relatable it makes them more human uh and it makes it it makes us able to sort of map that experience onto our own lives which is one of the sort of magics of reading yeah and there's a long standing like trope of the character in a fantasy tale or a sci-fi or a, a fairy story um screwing something up and then having to fix it, you know, the sort of yeah. sorcerer's apprentice thing with, with the nanites and uh, having to write what was wrong. Yeah, and I mean, this is part of why Wesley becomes less controversial as he goes along. Obviously, he grows up as well and starts wearing a normal uniform and everything, yeah. but he, he becomes less of an annoying character the more he screws up and learns how to fix his own problems. Oh, yeah. uh, and so people like him a lot more by the time he leaves, uh, even though that episode, oh my God, is that a problematic episode, <laughs> the episode where Wesley leaves. Uh, yes. <laughs> he, he is, a, he is a, a much more liked character then than he is in this first season where he really isn't ever wrong uh, in this first season. He's just Wesley Crusher's space genius. Uh, right. <laughs> and and that's what annoys people, you know, uh, for adults tuning in that wanted to see their adult science fiction to have this, uh, you know, little kid who is always chirping at everybody and then always turns out to be right was deeply irritating to them. It is neither <laughs> Wesley, the fictional character, nor Will Wheaton's fault. Uh, oh, it no, just, no. You know, it's it's the Jar Jar effect. Oh, boy. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Don't cross the streams. Uh, yeah. Um, the, I was thinking I was ruminating on the sort of fantasy tropes that you see often in sci-fi and even in Trek. And this episode is is dinging a lot of them. Um, you've got the Traveler, who I see is like this idea of like a space elf almost, you know, this sort of different yeah. sort of race that's more enlightened, um, has weird uh, sort of body features. Um, also, it sort of is like a fairy godfather to Wesley in a lot of ways, you know, comes yeah. in and, and tells him that uh, he's special and he's got his back and then shows up uh, in times of trouble, you know, in later on in the series. Yeah, he's like Jiminy Cricket. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and, you know, even the effects wise, like I, I have to say that this is a beautiful episode and mm -hmm, uh, yeah. it must have looked amazing uh, back when it first aired, it, it, you know, the way that. Some television shows look like movies every week. These days, we've kind of gotten used to that. Yeah. But this must have looked incredible to air in 1989. Like, it, it, it just must have been amazing. Uh, and one of the effects is clearly bubbles. Uh, <laughs> like, it, it's clearly soap bubbles. Uh, it looks great. The lighting on the bubbles makes it look super mystical and everything. Yeah. But, like, that is a really common fantasy film technique. Yeah. Uh, you can see it in uh, Legend and Dark Crystal and all of yeah, those great yeah. fantasy movies where the bubbles float through. Uh, 
Uh, but you can light those things in a hundred ways to make them look like will-o'-the-wisps or, or in whatever they are supposed to be in this episode. I read that the the um, effects guy did that in his basement. Like he just put like a pool <laughs> or kiddie pool down there and then shot that stuff. Yeah, no, it looks great. It looks fantastic. You mentioned before the traveler, the idea of Kaczynski sort of, um, you know, enslaving him or using him. And I thought of like a genie in that case, um, although he's not really... There is no, there's sort of a, there's the threat of something bad happening for how he uses this guy. But of course, then the, the genie of the traveler in this case is the solution to the problem as well. We never really know uh, much about this character. No. And it seems like he's really being harmed by the end of this and then he's just gone. But we don't know if he just like burned out a corporeal form and had to get another one or what. Like we, we never really find out what happened. He just sort of kind of exit stage left yeah yeah pursued by bubbles um but it, it's it's definitely that kind of yoda or going into the west <laughs> yeah. like in uh, lord of the rings feeling of uh you know the enlightened other species uh does its work and then passes into the next uh phase of being so yeah. to speak he doesn't feel like he's dead, but he's definitely like not there. And so it's a surprise when he turns up again later on. I'm ascending. Yeah. And I will come yeah. back when you need me. Uh, Which for... happens a lot in Next Gen, actually. There are a number mm -hmm. of episodes where someone phases out of of uh, gross matter and into the next stage. Yeah. For for a show that is supposed to be uh, atheistic or at least agnostic, uh, there are a lot of um, these sort of energy or spiritual aliens. There's a lot of like... Um, sort of reassurance that things are going to be okay, like that you would mm. get, you know, from um, from a faith or a religion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Wesley says something in the beginning when he's talking to the traveler uh, about like uh, the traveler says, oh, what do these equations say? And Wesley's like, uh, that yeah. time and matter are, no, are not as <laughs> intricately linked as we think. Yeah. I think that's what those equations say. Do they, Wesley? Do they say that? Um, <laughs> yeah. <no. laughs> I don't think so. But yeah. Sure. <laughs> and in that way, he's kind of a, it's, he's sort of a testing his character, you know, sort of a, like yeah, a threshold guardian. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you you brought up before the idea of uh, thinking happy thoughts and uh, you know clapping for the fairies to uh, give him strength, which I, I think that the show might have been better served by doubling down on and pointing out how sort of ridiculous it is. You know, at one point, somebody Kozinski I think says, "This is crazy. This sounds like magic." And the traveler's like, yeah, I guess it would seem like magic. Ever heard of Arthur C. Clarke? You know, yeah. but having Picard really be like, I can't, you know, just say clap for fairies or just say like, yeah, like, this, no, I... for, to rational people, this doesn't make any sense. But apparently time, thought and space, you know, are one. And so we can help this guy by putting our, you know, our noble exploratory spirits, you know, in behind him to get us home. Yeah. Uh, look, ain't no shame in the game. Doctor Who does it. As well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Tinkerbell Doctor. Um, so, <laughs> like, it, it is it is a goofy trope, but given what the episode is set up as its premise, it is logical. It follows logically. I think it's honest to the premise. So it doesn't feel quite as cheesy to me as it might, because that clearly must be some kind of solution if, if, if indeed we are aware we seem to be and that that is true i think if this were if this episode were being reshot today you would go through a whole montage of different crew members and like the fantasies that they're trying to ignore okay uh while this happens but of course you're talking about something with much less budget and much i, I mean i think it's hard for people to understand 
what the rules of television were in the 80s and the 70s and the 60s. Like, if you go back and there's so much on streaming now, you can watch these. They're much more like plays, episodes of these shows, uh, of any show in in, in the 80s. They're much more like plays than they are uh, like movies. And now they feel more like hour-long movies. But Mm -hmm. then it's just, um, it's, you know, the stationary camera. uh, There's not a lot of experimentation in structure. Actually, I think Farscape. uh, Oh, boy. Okay. All right. She did it. I didn't do it. I always talk about Farscape on this show. (laughs) Oh, Farscape's my favorite. I love Farscape so much. Uh, (laughs) I I haven't seen it nearly as many times because it is so emotionally brutal compared to Star Trek. I'm not going to roll up and watch Season of Death. Uh, But... I think that Farscape did a huge amount to uh, influence writers uh, as to what you could do with science, like shipboard science fiction structure yeah. uh, in a, in a 42 minute episode. Um, but we weren't there yet. We were really just at the beginning of television beginning to evolve into its own medium and a medium with, with a very different set of rules than any other. Yeah. So you're still talking about the late eighties where you have, you know, what else is airing is golden girls, you know, <laughs> well, Roseanne. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not talking about genre. I'm ta- those are great shows. I'm talking about the structure of an episode yeah. uh, of any given show and what the rules of that episode were. So at no point in any show that aired at this time were you going to have a, you know, a montage of a bunch of different characters and what they're going through as a climax to an episode, characters you might never see again. Yeah. That's just not really how things worked at the how, how how you created an emotional climax at the time yeah you know you focused in on a, a tight close-up of your main characters especially since you're only on episode five and people probably even remember what their names are at this point uh and you know you have the the protagonist the in this case was very much being presented as picard rather than necessarily an ensemble yeah. uh you know tell you what the rules are and then everybody believes really hard and it gets resolved it gets resolved in 42 minutes always um so even having that traveler come back in the two other episodes that it does was was beginning to really uh, look at different ways of, of of using episodic television and of course the episode family that comes right after uh, best of both worlds uh, where where Picard becomes Locutus is is you know the first time in any Star Trek that there is an entire episode devoted to the emotional fallout of so what had happened run on before. continuity yeah and uh, people you you can talk to people who are critic who are critics of television professionally and they will talk about that episode as as one of the first uh to start to delve into uh the emotional ramifications of of episodes that would have just been left to be their own little bubble universe in in previous series uh and so i think that the way you would shoot this episode now would be just drastically different Uh, if you're in a bubble university traveler can help you by the way um (laughs) Okay, all right. So, listeners, she did it. She brought up Farscape, so I'm, I got to rewind a little bit to Farscape. I've always thought of Farscape as kind of an anti-Trek, not anti in that we oppose it, but it's like an answer to Trek because the way that Trek structures its narratives and the way that they want to solve problems, Farscape will get to the Star Trek solution at the end of the second act. It won't work, and then they're forced to improvise over the course of the next, the rest of the show to find some solution to the problem that will absolutely require a sacrifice and won't, not everything will be reset, you know, at the end of the episode. And it's about finding those like hard choices and living with them. You know, if you get two Rikers on Star Trek, you know that one of those Rikers is either dead or is going to leave by the end of the show. Mm. Whereas on Farscape, you get two Crichtons and that's the next, you know, six months of your show is exploring two Crichtons. 
Yeah, no, I'm look, I, I love Farscape and I actually, um, I will controversially say it is my favorite uh, oh, science boy. fiction television show. But, but here's why I will watch Next Gen all the time and my favorite science fiction television show I will not because Farscape does all of the things we're talking about. It absolutely explores the emotional ramifications of everything. Everything is a lot weirder. It's a lot darker. Starfleet is one guy and he screws up constantly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, um, and you, the emotional payoff that, that you as a fan want is held absolutely as long as humanly possible before it's paid off. It is brutal to watch this show outside of season one. Season one is, you know, very much like a lot of other episodic science fiction. Yeah. There are great episodes in it, but the weakest episodes of the show are all in season one as well. And it, it's kind of trying to be Star Trek in that way. But outside of season one, I don't want to put myself through that again. Yeah. It is just a lot. It's a lot to deal with. You know, if you have any sort of issues with depression, season three is just not something you should ever yeah, put an episode <laughs> on. Like it's really rough. Yeah. Whereas next gen, next gen is never going to ask that of me. It is, you know, it'll put my heart through the ringer for like 10 minutes of the episode and then things will be okay uh and like that's why it's comfort washing for me that's why you know i can recite a lot more of star trek than i can of farscape even <laughs> though i think that farscape is a is a is a huge jump forward in, in televised science fiction uh star star trek wants to hug me and tell yes. me that everything's going to be okay farscape is like nothing's going to be okay fuck you <laughs> yeah, but the, yeah, that's what, that's but, it, what... but beautifully and greatly, yes. like, uh, you know, Farscape is wonderful and it is truly space opera, I think. Oh yeah, uh, I, I agree. But, but my God, like there's only, there's only so much of that I can deal with. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what Trek wants to do. Like you said, I think it wants to hug you and tell you that, you know, we're going to make it. That optimism is even yeah. in like discovery, <clears throat> which in its two seasons goes to some really dark places. It always comes back and says, yeah, yeah but we're going to make it because we're better and we're closer connected than, than they are. Yeah. I don't think Gene Roddenberry would be mad to hear me say that. No, uh, no, no. Like, you know, I think that that's what he wanted Star Trek to feel like. Yeah. Uh, and it does, you know, fill me with hope. And, you know, I was reading uh, an article about, uh, I mean, even saying this phrase, uh, it, but like the problem of masculinity in the modern world. Okay. And uh, obviously, you know, we do have problems with masculinity and finding new models of masculinity. Yeah. But one of the ones that, that this article brought up, and I genuinely believe it's true, is that perhaps Picard is a great goal for a masculine role model in the modern world. You know, he is calm. He is easygoing. He is progressive. He is strong. He is empathetic. He shows emotion. He represses emotion. He, he does it all. Uh, and he does it without alienating the people around him or making them feel bad about themselves or having to bang everything in the universe. <laughs> uh, and I mean, I adore Picard and I think he's just amazing uh, as a captain. And I can't, e I can't even imagine how weird that must have seemed to fans at the time, how different he is than Kirk. And of course, Riker is the Kirk uh, stand in and Riker's an HR nightmare walking through the ship yeah but uh <laughs> but you know i think that there's so much on next gen um that actually does hold up really well there's some some things that don't but uh but for for modern viewers and i think that with streaming and everything there are a lot of people who are still discovering it for the first time 
Somebody must, I'm sure if you go back and through a, a microfiche of old newspapers or something, somebody must have hated uh, Picard or thought that he was inferior, but... Oh, I mean, Kirk versus Picard was like the original Usenet argument. Yeah, but you can't, <laughs> you know, with fans of a certain age, there is no <laughs> argument over that question, no, you know, it's none. just Picard. Like, yeah. Absolutely none. Yeah. But, but, I mean, at the time, I do remember in the, you know, a, a, a little bit at the time, people, like, there was no question then that Kirk was this superior yeah. uh captain and always would be and i mean i think that patrick stewart being who he is and having stayed in the public eye but in a different way than shatner has oh, uh oh, and had oh. ha having a very successful career in uh other science fiction uh but remaining this very um jocular kind-hearted public figure has had a lot to do with uh, people remembering Picard very fondly. That said, Picard is kind of a jerk in the first season. Well, yeah. Like, he, he, is not, he is not fully himself yet. Uh, and it's definitely the season where he tells Wesley to shut up and does other things that are not, yeah. not, not great models of masculinity. But uh, I think that Picard, Picard and Dale Cooper, uh, to name check uh, Twin Peaks again, are, are two real models of masculine protagonists uh that uh, i would love to see more men like that in media yeah dale cooper especially yeah. um not the new dale cooper uh, evil Dale. No, no. <laughs> bad news <laughs> i was just thinking that like psychic powers are something that are a big part of like mid 20th century sci-fi and space opera and they appear um they don't appear in trek after the like they're in the first or the sorry they're in the second pilot uh, where no man has gone before because Gary Mitchell is you know esper right. has an esper rating but that gets relevated <laughs> to other races like Vulcans and Beta Zeds why do you think that they steered Trek away from like psychicness well I think it's op basically oh, okay right. <laughs> like like it, it has to be nerfed like Troy has to be nerfed she's mostly useless except in a couple episodes where they let her be at least somewhat uh, useful to the plot but like they couldn't have just a psychic on the enterprise because it, it's like having a cell phone in a horror movie it makes plot harder <laughs> uh if you if you've got like a just a great psychic on deck uh it just makes it more difficult to have uh deceptive plot lines yeah. and if you look at something like babylon 5 um uh, like yeah they've got psychics floating all around psionics and everything but um they have different levels and i think it's very deliberate that uh the one that's super powerful gets canned in the first season yeah uh, and you end up with somebody who's like a level two uh again uh like half beta z so that we can actually have plots where people hide their intentions yeah uh, with uh without it, it breaking the rules that were set up yeah, oh that ferengi that. seems untrustworthy okay all right. oh you think maybe <laughs> oh thanks Troy. really help yeah. i'm glad you're here <laughs> I think it's fascinating that we see Picard's mother in this episode. Um, it's clearly affecting for him. And despite the clunky dialogue that Stuart gets in the first season, it's great work here by Stuart. You see like 10 oh, emotions I... pass over his face. There's no dialogue that he can't make gold out of. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and then we don't talk about her ever again. <laughs> I don't think nope. she's even mentioned. Nope. Mom, Mom just poured some tea and peaced out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's so strange in that way. You know, all of our characters handle their kind of their, the Solaris situation that they're in here pretty well. Um, and they're kind of freaked out. But what something else that I love about the heroic quality of these characters is when they're having their little confab on the bridge, Data's like, I mean, he's not going to see anybody, but he's like, you know, we could stick around and like explore. And everybody's like, you know, we could do that, but we should probably get back home. 
<laughs> Even in the face of this existential terror, they're like, let's check it out. Let's fire some probes. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think that I, 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 again, if you were shooting this now, you'd probably have a three episode arc, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you'd probably do something with this and uh, and you'd use it to explore uh, some of the crew and, and where they're coming from and what their little past traumas are and everything. Uh, and, you know, there's a little bit of that with the, the Targ and, and you see a little bit of who Worf must be and a little bit of who Picard must be. Yeah. I think it's interesting in that scene, rewatching <laughs> it in preparation for this podcast, I was like, huh. So it's because of what Yvette says uh, that Picard's actually talking to her as though she might be an alien intelligence rather than just a hallucination. Yes, yes. Uh, and she answers back as though she is as well. So I think that like even him thinking that that's who she is informs what she says. Makes back to her, her that. Yeah. It's, very, yeah. it's actually a very interesting little scene. Um, I think purely down to the acting in that scene. Uh, and so you kind of see this give and, give and take between them. And there's like the fire hallucination and everything. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, I mean, the, the only real disappointment to the episode for me is that we don't spend more time in that. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, it's, it is a situation that can rapidly get out of control. But I kind of like to see the out of control. But I understand that in episode five, you're not going to do it. Uh, yeah, not not in not in a an era where there's 28 episodes in a season, you know. Yeah, now sure. Yeah, there's there's a suggestion that it could be dangerous that they could you know lose themselves and and they wouldn't distinguish between reality and fantasy anymore. But I don't think there's any real danger that's that's sold to us. This is running theme in Trek, especially with a character like Q or the Traveler, where a godlike alien comes in and and tells us. Uh, you know, you think you're so curious, but curiosity is dangerous. You know, be careful. Mm. Learning too much can destroy you, too much knowledge. Yeah. But in this case, the traveler is like the opposite. Um, he literally says that they've been around for all of humanity's existence. And we're literally now only interesting because we're throwing ourselves into the void looking for stuff. And like the traveler's like, well, we dig that. Absolutely. And it's it's definitely a softer, gentler kind of final frontier there and uh but of course q takes them directly somewhere dangerous in order to <laughs> immediately hurt he's like, like, he, yeah. he does it on purpose and he does it he cyborg zombies what do you what do you guys yeah, think <laughs> I think uh just to see what they'll do whereas the traveler is is not actively trying to harm uh humans as a species and doesn't have any animosity towards them and he said he in fact says that uh, up until recently humans were uninteresting yeah. which of course for a human being is actually the worst insult right. they wouldn't mind being called monsters they just don't want to don't want to be called late for dinner uh to call it interesting um, yeah this is the mean joe green giving the kid the sunglasses it's like oh thanks we're interesting yeah <laughs> so uh yeah i think the traveler is a very different sense of that and i think it's it, the episode's very much meant to invoke that sense of wonder that classic science fiction does mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. i think that's kind of the whole purpose of that episode to sort of make next gen seem like oh we're gonna go further than the original series did we're gonna like really explore the edges of things um and even that whole the thought relationship between thought and reality and all that kind of harkens back to like the explosion of the psychological sciences and psychiatry in the 70s and the 60s, which really uh, made their way into science fiction yeah, in a big way. Yeah. The traveler is Tim Timothy Leary. We got it. Yeah, exactly. No, like <laughs> open your consciousness, tune in, drop out. I, I think the writers <laughs> I think the writers showed amazing restraint in giving us um, the cat for Tasha Yar instead of what she uh, could be imagining. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, because 
she can't stop saying the phrase rape gang. Once so, again, like, the they gotta drop person. in rape gangs. Yeah. It's yeah. so awkward. Oh man, when she's trying to seduce Data and she brings it up, I'm like, girl, what are you doing? You have no game That's at all. That's not game. Uh, like, yeah. Come on. No, 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 no. There's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's... And, she, and she brings it. I don't know the actress. I love Denise Crosby. I really do. But oh my god, like she just seems to have no idea how to deliver oh, no. that in a way that is just not dropping a flaming sack of poo at a dinner party. Like it, <laughs> yeah, it is yeah. just so inappropriate the time she brings it up. I feel bad for her trauma and everything, but like she brings it up a lot. Uh, I think there's so, a... <laughs> yeah, like a kitty cat and not, and that kitty cat was nicely groomed. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. It was not. Yeah. <laughs> all, all straggly, yeah. At all. <laughs> I think there's a, a fascinating uh, idea there. The idea of, you know, what happens to one of these colonies in this amazing utopia that isn't getting what it needs and and it sort of breaks off from the utopia, what happens. Uh, but again, that's not something I think that Trek is, is looking to explore. If you've got a show like Trek that's uh, set in this utopia where the establishment itself is benevolent, can Trek even get in on this punk business? Is there such a thing as Trek punk? Well, I mean, the thing is that Star Trek has given up on that utopia thing a long time ago. Uh, like uh, Roddenberry's gone, and uh, I think that the subsequent writers very quickly uh, decided that they they weren't really into humans being fully evolved yet uh, the way he was. And so you see that with DS9, uh, with the amazing episode in, in the Pale Moonlight. Uh, like you see with the whole Dominion War and all of the moral complications of that. Right. Um, and I think that DS9. I, I mean, it, DS9 is kind of a reaction to Trek, even though it aired during possibly the most Trek saturated time oh, yeah. till, you know, what's going to happen with CBS just dumping a million Star Treks on us. Uh, but I think that we're going to see it. We're, we're about to see it with all of these new C CBS shows and Paramount shows. We're going to see it with Picard, I think, uh, with Star Trek Picard. I think we're going to see uh, a really different kind of show. I mean, uh, the fact that the protagonists are seven of nine in Picard, like, we're we're already mashing things up, and I don't think Patrick Stewart would come back for anything less than something really amazing. And of course, if you think about the last X Men he did, Logan, I think Logan's probably a uh, real preview into what we're going to see with Picard. And uh, I think that Logan is kind of a punk against uh, the the previous X Men movies. So I think absolutely, if you let go of the idea that Starfleet is fully benevolent and humans are awesome, which even uh, Next Gen does. Starfleet is uh, infiltrated by those weird scanners aliens uh, at one point. Uh, they're not scanners aliens. They just make the head explode like the right, scanners. Right. Uh, little, yeah. Wormy aliens, which we also get uh, resolved in one episode. Uh, thank yep. you, you know, we, we get into Star Trek, starkly being fallible, uh, even in next gen and, uh, and, and definitely by the time DS nine Voyager enterprise, um, but of course, Discovery is a prequel. So, you know, Starfleet can be a little rougher around the edges. It can be a little yeah. uh, less less perfect, um, even though it's supposed to be only 10 years before. Well, yeah. Thank you. Before. Um, but I, I think that with all of these different takes on Star Trek that uh, they're going to start putting out in order to franchise the thing to death again, uh, <laughs> we're going to we're going to see some punk out there. We're going to see some some reactions because that's what people like to do nowadays. Yeah. I get it. I get it with like both the uh, 
tie-ins that I've done. I went into something that I loved and and saw what I could do to upend the assumptions of it. Yeah. And I think that's one of the first uh, things you kind of want to upend because if you look at Starfleet, it's a it's a colonialist organization. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, it is. Look, I, I I'm 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 as big a Trekkie as anybody. I think you can tell that by this point <laughs> yeah. in the podcast. And uh, and I love Starfleet and I love all of the people in it. But you can't ignore that Q is sometimes right when oh, he talks God, yeah. about, and and so is Quark. Uh, when when they talk about human beings and and going out into the galaxy and what they do and how they assimilate, yeah. Uh, and and I think that that's part of why the Borg have been such a powerful metaphor uh, because there is a sense in which this that Starfleet assimilates as well. Yeah. Uh, and you're looking at something that is very much sort of part Dutch East India Company and part Amazon or Microsoft. You know, mm. when you look at at, at Starfleet and. They, they are benevolent, but it is still made up of flawed people. And you see it in, in many different episodes. And I think that I think you can keep a utopia and still have realistic human characters. I hope so. Uh, yeah. So I think that that's going to probably be a tension in, in the future Star, Star Trek series. I both want it and I don't because I agree that like I think we've taken uh, it as far as we can. This uh, sort of setting our stories in this utopian Society and then looking at other people, aliens, and saying, oh, boy, they got problems. Um, and I've always I've maintained for a long time that I think the most fictional element of Trek is the idea that we get all of our collective shit together and we are a utopia. Mm. But at the same time, I don't something about it being like that metaphorical city on the hill is reassuring to me. I'm a big fan of the culture novels of Ian M. Banks. Yeah. And yeah. he would, you know, he spun out so many of them. And every time he'd do another one, the fans are like, oh, when's he going to write one about the fall of the culture, which in his books is this very Federation, you know, socio-anarchic uh, society. Yeah. And I think his thing was like, why would it fall? Like, what if it just, this is where the books are set. Like, don't you want this? <laughs> this is like the perfect yeah. society. Like my supposition in this fictional world is, if you solve the problem, maybe it stays solved. And so yeah. I hate to see Picard or um, another series set 50 or 100 years in the future that the Federation has fallen into ruins. But, you know, it's a story. Maybe we got to go where the story is. Well, I mean, that's clearly part of where Discovery is going with the Vidraish thing. Mm, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I mean, that's, you know, millennia in the future. I, I don't know. I don't know that I can be mad about that. But, you know, maybe if because I keep coming back to the Picard series. It is Star Trek Picard. So obviously it's going. I just made a grand gesture with my hand. Uh, <laughs> Star Trek Picard! Uh, exclamation point. And uh, I, maybe, you know, the utopia does not reach to the human soul. And so everybody you there there is no human evolution that would have you go through as much as Picard has gone through without uh emotional damage yeah. and that's what the episode family is about and i assume that's part of what Picard the series is going to be about yeah. and uh i think that you know with section 31 and all I, they they want to bring all this dark cloak and dagger stuff into it and that's all all well and good if it is toward that federation and starfleet that we know and love but i don't much like we were talking to bring it back around to what we were talking about with wesley and mary sue i mean starfleet is 
an organizational Mary Sue, essentially. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, not, and none of us are particularly mad about it, but you know, maybe it's a little more hard won if we see them fail sometimes. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, and the, the Starfleet still does have elected officials. Uh, we've seen them before. They still have ranks. They still have people that vie for promotions and get them or don't get them. You know, not everyone is going to succeed at the ideals. And maybe if we see people fail and pick themselves up and, you know, fix it, uh, that will feel more real to us. I think Gene was right in a way that uh, maybe the goal is to have no human conflict. But of course, from a fictional perspective, um, that's worthless. So we have to yeah. we have yeah. to have conflict. So uh, utopia in real life, uh, break it all apart in the uh, fiction. That's what I say. Yeah. Well, as we get to the end of the show here, uh, is there anything left unsaid that you wanted to still say about where no one has gone before? Troy has huge eyes and it's one of her weird hairdos before they sort of yes. settle on the sort of three of them. Yeah. Um, it's also she got the tight cat suit going on. I think that Troy um, is kind of one of the most tragic characters of Trek. She had very little to do with this episode, but every time I see her in the early seasons, I'm like, if they had just put her in a uniform, a regular uniform like everyone else, she would have been taken very differently as a character by everyone mm -hmm. in fandom and otherwise if she had just there is no reason to not have a ship's counselor it's a good idea yeah. like organizationally you need one these people are, are literally going where no one has gone before they are going to suffer like all the psychological issues we were just talking about you should have a, a shrink on the ship absolutely uh it's unfortunate that she was treated like a sex kitten for so long. Uh, but if you, but you know, much, much later on when she goes in for her command uh, qualification and you see her in just a regular uniform, you can see what that character might have been. Uh, and so every time I see her in these early episodes where it's the worst she ever gets treated, just is such an object and so the subject of everyone's gaze and and is not given hardly anything to do except sit there and look pretty next to picard on on the on the bridge um i just i i feel so bad for marina sirtis and i i feel the yeah. tragedy of a character that could have been uh a lot better than than she was yeah a character and you see when she's in uniform you you understand uh how successful and professional she is mm -hmm. you know she's a lieutenant commander just like anybody else here and just because she's not juggling isolinear chips, you know, or flying the ship or something like that, we don't see that. We're getting that now with uh, current series. Like a lot of people um, are big fans of uh, Jane Brooke as Admiral Cornwell, um, mm -hmm. myself included, although they give her a real yeah. dumb death. <laughs> but yeah, spoilers well. for season two. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, but just and see, getting that same feeling that we could have got for Troy for characters that we have now. Yeah, and you can see it with Battlestar Galactica and sort of, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the characters that, that serve that role of sort of nurturing and counseling people who are, are have a collective trauma. Um, and, I, I, you know, not everything is better by a long shot uh, in current television, but I don't think that they would make Troy the same now. Um, they, they definitely have tried to rehabilitate that aspect of her in the movies and, and things like that, but there's only so far you can go with such an established character. Um, but I do feel, I, I do feel like they could have, I mean, everyone's thoughts become reality. What's going on with Troy? Like the, that should, 
have been half the episode, really, right. because she, uh, like, what in the world effect does this have on her and, yeah. and all, all of that? And, of course, she has the same kind of backstory that Worf does, but Worf's is treated much more seriously, yeah. where she's caught, caught between two worlds and doesn't identify fully with either of them. Um, but it's all kind of brought in with Loxana uh, and treated as a joke rather than... Except that one episode where Lakana does the holodeck thing with Alexander, which is a episode that few people talk about, and it's actually a really good episode. Really? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's a, I mean, it's goofy. It's super goofy. Yeah. Like if you just an episode in gifts, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it has right. The dancing clown and everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but what Lakana says to Alexander and what she does throughout the whole episode, she is giving this little boy therapy. You know, she is treating a little boy that nobody is taking care of and who has an incredible trauma from his mother dying. And I think that what she says to him in their little hot tub mud puddle is 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 really genuinely well written and uh, and touching. And it's one of the few times that Loxana just behaves as a normal person who is not, you know, who who cares about other people and is not a walking joke. Um, So, I yeah. I, I look at Troy and I just am like, I wish you just could have been a regular crew member like all the other crew members because it would have made for a better story. So that's the only other thing I think I have to say about the episode. Maybe we'll get something good along those lines in when she appears in Picard. Yeah, maybe. Let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Oh, I mean, it has to be Picard. Uh, like uh, maybe a little bit. I, I really do enjoy Cisco uh, and I enjoy Avery Brooks a lot. I think he deserves so much respect for taking some really left turn acting choices uh, with something that could have been very locked down and straightforward. And he's, his voice is just up uh, all over the place and he is a great, he is a great father. But uh, I got to say that Picard's my man. Like he's, He's an archaeology dork. I majored in classics. Uh, like he's not as old as you think. He's only in his like mid forties. It's just that he's never had hair. Right. Uh, he's kind to most people. He like he's feels things very deeply, but he can control his emotions. He doesn't have to punch or bang everything. Uh, like I love Picard, and he 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 is a, a great strategic mind, uh, and very very rarely blows up his own ship. Just, yeah. uh, only, only occasionally right. um, does he really make the wrong choice and uh, I think that if you're looking for a captain that fully embodies the ideals of Starfleet like the best Starfleet can be you've got to say it's Picard I, I have to agree with that I like the fact that he of course he lost the Stargazer and then when the Enterprise, <laughs> Enterprise D goes down he's like well, that wasn't me that wasn't on, <laughs> whew, wasn't on the planet <laughs> Now that we've reached the end of the show, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in? Uh, command. I got to be in charge. Interesting. So <laughs> if you are, so you're going to be a red shirt then. Now, many yeah. command people start off uh, as, you know, attaches or in some aspect of command or negotiation that then blossoms into, you know, actually being in charge of people. So is there some subset there that you'd be involved in? Yeah, I think I'd be a good negotiator. Okay. Yeah. You're the... I mean, not as good as Deanna, obviously. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that um, you know, one of the, as a writer, one of the things that I can do very well is to empathize with people's positions that I don't personally take, uh, and 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 work out uh, realistic ways for those positions to be satisfied. Yeah. Uh, so I think I would be a good negotiator. I suppose you'd have to. There's got to be speech writers in the 24th century still. Or oh maybe, sure, I, I would imagine. Or maybe there's an AI, like an app or something like that. You can give me a <laughs> uh, speech maybe, for this. Maybe I'd maybe I'd just be Jake writing my articles. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> 
<laughs> the internet's down. I can't get this out. Post them to Facebook. <laughs> Spacebook. There you go. Uh, MySpace. Uh, already been done. Ensign Valenti, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EISTPod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, I'm Kat Valenti on Twitter, Kat Valenti on Patreon, and CM Valenti on Facebook. And do you have any work coming up that we should keep an eye out for? Yeah. Uh, so my Minecraft tie-in book, which is called The End, is coming out November 5th. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I had a child recently, so there'll be a little, bit of a, a little bit of a gap in 2020. Uh, I think I've got a couple novellas coming out and then, oh my God, so much will be coming out in 2021. Okay. All right. Well, listeners should keep an eye out for that. And thanks again for joining me. All right. Thank you. We are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. Sunday.